Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, I have a short, uh, but topical, stack Woody. Ooh, topical. It's topical because we had the elections on Thursday and we couldn't escape the presence of the vastly irritating Count Binface, <laughs> whose slightly trying policies, I don't need to remind you, David, included renaming London Bridge Phoebe Waller and the moving of the hand dryer and the gents' toilet at the Crown and Treaty in Uxbridge to a more sensible position. Oh, gosh, it's annoying, isn't it? Are you annoyed already? I don't know. I, yes. <laughs> I, always feel, I always feel sorry when I see the count, you know, the, the declaration of results. I genuinely see, feel sorry to, to see people who devoted their lives to public service and many different political parties being surrounded by attention-getting loons. Yeah, wearing with cute, stupid hats. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, put them somewhere different. And they're getting anyway, less votes than them. But anyway, <laughs> is it time for a round of, uh, of, of soul-sapping UK political candidate or fun-loving Calypso star? <laughs> All right? I've got, I've got eight for you. Lord Shorty, electoral hopeful or Trinidad crooner? <laughs> oh, very good. Electoral hopeful. No, Lord Shorty, no, was a Calypso singer from the 60s and 70s, known as the father of Soka and the love man. Very good. Lord Buckethead. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be a, a, a candidate. It is, yeah. No, right. he, he, was, he, was, he stood against uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher in Finchley in London in the 1987 general election, a campaign to demolish Birmingham and to make way for a spaceport. Got 131 votes. <laughs> Howling Lord Hope, our boy at the hustings or a man singing rude songs about plantains? A man Howling... singing rude songs about plantains, surely. Uh, well, no. Together with his pet cat, Cat Mando, he took over as the party leader from Screaming Lord Such in 1998. He's also the, uh, the mayor of Ashburton. It's working, isn't it? It's working. OK, the Duke of Iron. The Duke of Iron. Is that an electoral can irritant Calypso. Yeah. Calypso, surely. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Calypsonian nightclub and concert entertainer, recording artist from the 1930s. Um, Attila the Hun, joke candidate in comedy costume or warbling toe tapper? A warbling Attila. toe tapper? Yes, he was. Calypso yeah, singer from Trinidad. 
yes. sang in and it began in 1911, one of the pioneers for spreading the awareness of Calypso beyond its birthplace, it says here, together with the Roaring Lion. OK, three to go. Roaring Mr. Lion, what a great name. Roaring Lion's great, isn't it? Mr yeah. Fishfinger, was, was he looking for votes or for record sales? He was looking for votes. <laughs> he was. Mr Fishfinger was a man dressed as a piece of frozen food who stood against the leader of the Liberal Dem Democrats, Tim Farron, in Cumbria's Westmoreland and Lonsdale in 2017. And astonishingly, he got 309 votes. I'll tell you what, uh, these, these candidates are a lot funnier and more charming the way you talk about them. If you if they'd pulled up on your doorstep, you wouldn't have been amused at all. I would be I, remotely amused. <laughs> it, it irritates me so much. All right, two to go. Angus the monkey. Did we, did we vote for him or did we dance to him? Now, Angus the monkey isn't because the, the story goes that the people of Hartlepool many, many years ago once once voted for a monkey, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so there's no connection with that. I thought it might have been the connection. It might have been the mascot of a local football team as well. I can't remember now. But no, uh, he was, he was uh, yeah, Stuart Drummond. All right. Uh, the only directed elected mayor of Hartlepool. All right, and, there you go. Okay. Was. Yeah, absolutely right, yeah. And the last one is Growling Tiger. Oh, Mayor surely. in the making or Caribbean Songbird? Caribbean Songbird, yes. surely. Yeah, oh, he's God. a boxer who won the Trinidad Flyweight Championship in 1929. Do you know, I do love a bit of Calypso. I so do I. Genuinely so love. Do I. I mean, you know, because we always used to say that the one, the one form of music that never failed in the word office was Scar. You can yeah. always put on Scar. Everybody likes Scar. Doesn't matter who they were. Same thing applies. Similar. To Calypso music. It's impossible Classic not to like Classic Calypso music. You know. The number of times that I've heard London is the place for me on documentary. Oh, recently. God. And it's great record. A fabulous record. Fabulous record. Fantastic piece of piece of advertising and propaganda, and it's so sweet. And, uh, well, while well, we're talking about um, trivia, when do we ever talk about anything else? <laughs> while we're talking about trivia. While we're talking about trivia. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, I don't know how this surfaced this week, the, the, the late, great Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. This popped up on social media. He said there were three things in life that were overrated. Did you see this? No, go on. Okay. Champagne, anal well, sex, and picnics. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> Martin Amis was going to be one of them. Perfect. Champagne, anal sex, and picnics. My God. That's so good. <laughs> In and his I thought, twisted I thought mind, he would have combined all three on some point, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment on the on the middle one, but I, I don't think champagne is overrated at all. Impossible to, to overrate champagne unless but, you buy cheap stuff. But picnics, yes, picnics are overrated. I'm completely with him, you know, because as soon as you know you, you get any food out, flies just flies, wasps. from wasps from all over the place. And I thought, is there anything in this? You know, if you had to if you had to pick three things that are overrated. And these are my three. Oh, go on. Okay. Drugs. Drugs are overrated because I cannot see a situation where drugs doesn't turn normal people into raging bores. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I completely agree with it. Drugs, acoustic sessions, acoustic oh. sessions are always overrated. You know, Radio well. One is full of them. People sitting around on stools, you know, doing yeah. kind of. Slow, rather delicate versions of things that used to be big banging classics, you know, yeah. and, and they're looking rather pleased with themselves because they managed to do this. That's overrated. And the third Nirvana, that, Nirvana on, on Unplugged oh, was pretty good. That's the that's one good. exception. That's, that's the one good. exception. I'll give you that. I'll give that you was that. pretty good. As was Eric Clapton, actually, but it was pretty good. But, but uh, I know what you mean. Speaking, it's the idea that it's somehow speaking. meant to be better. Yeah, it's yeah. somehow meant to be purer. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the third thing, there's always a, a overrated. So we've had drugs. We've had acoustic sessions. Here's the third thing that's always overrated. Always, always, always the new album. <laughs> the new album is always overrated. It just is. Because in the few weeks where people are referring to it as the new album, there are two sets of people who have opinions on it. One, the people who made it, whose job it is to tell you that it's fantastic. Yeah. And two, the small number of people who bought it, yeah. whose job it is to justify the fact that they bought it by and saying it's absolutely amazing. And it's Therefore, a very steep graph heading downwards, isn't it? Because you're desperately wanting it to be good, and then you then you suddenly think, is it quite as good? And you go back and just double-check that it's, it could be anywhere near as good as the one you liked that came out 10 years ago. And it isn't. It it's isn't. not. I know. It's just also, it's, that very cliche that, it's that cliche that they always have to say, and I can understand it. I mean, you know, if, you, if it's your new album, you've got to say that it's, it's, the, it's finally what you were meant to sound like. It's all come together in the studio. And uh, no, you're right. Miserable disappointment. So there you go. Drugs, acoustic sessions and the new album. I like so it. you can think about your own three for next week, and if anybody else has got their own three, yes, chip in, please. Three things that are always always overrated. So what were you saying about Bob Marley? Well, Bob Marley, um, it is very sadly on Tuesday, the eleventh of May, the fortieth anniversary of his death. My God! So I can distinctly remember because I just joined Smash Hits, was oh, working really? with you for the for yeah. pretty much the first time, and I can. In fact, you did. I think you did an obituary on Old Grey Whistle Test. Probably the only obituary, I should imagine. <laughs> would they have done, I don't, would they, would they have done something on radio? I don't know. At that time, it, those things were not really marked, were they? Also, it was a real surprise. I mean, none of us really had a clue. No, how bad Marley he was. Marley wasn't well. We, no. we, well, we knew he wasn't well, but we didn't know that it accelerated to that extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, it's so sad to think of that, because he was so young. How old would he be? I can't work it out now. 36, no, 37, something like that. Um, 45, I think. I mean, yeah. really, really young. And I saw him once, and uh, I saw the last London gig, and you saw that, when well, you saw the Lyceum. I saw the, I mean, you saw the Lyceum gig, there were was, was two, I think, it was finished up on the, on the live album. Fantastic. Yeah, that was unbelievable. That's genuinely, fantastic. Genuinely one of the most revelatory things I've ever seen and heard, because you turned up there, you had never heard a band like that, because there wasn't a band like that. You know, which was a kind of it was a reggae group that that kind of fronted up like a rock band. It was amplified like a rock band. It was yeah. kind of mixed like a rock band. You know, it was intended to kind of sound like a rock band, but it had this extraordinary, you know, bass and drums bottom that just shook the old Lyceum. And isn't it wonderful once again to reflect? I think it was, was the roof about, open. The roof was was open on the Thursday. Yeah. Oh. Um, Fantastic. And the uh, the I think we were talking about this. With, was it Ricky Lee Jones we were talking to about yeah. this? That that um, so many of the great buildings for live rock and roll were actually built for kind of Victorian musical, you know, or Victorian theatre. You know, they were not designed for that kind of thing at all. But they're they're just absolutely perfect, it's like the Shepherds of Bush Empire and all yeah, those kind well, of things. Yeah, they're the right shape, they're, aren't they? They're the right Acoustic size, they're the right shape. Yeah. I don't know, know what it is about it. But anyway, you know, this you felt you were inside this box that was just, you were all being vibrated by the sound of, of, of this rhythm station. And he, he managed to, I know, I know what I said earlier about drugs always making people really boring. <laughs> but 
it wasn't the case in Bob Marley's case. Because no. he always struck you as being simultaneously out of his tree. And, and incredibly focused and, and on it. And utterly on the money. I know. Utterly on it. Never missed a cue. Never at all. I know. Isn't that amazing? He'd wander around the stage. You'd do this kind of marching action across the stage and then slowly make his way back to his mic and arrive absolutely yeah. at the second that he was... Uh, and also, he was, he was so kind coming. of physically accelerated. You know, oh, yeah. my distant memories of people sitting around smoking dope was people just crash out on, on uh, listening to metal by the Pink Floyd on scatter cushions. <laughs> but this, he was so kind of, you know, physical, wasn't he? Uh, Leaping about, dancing, you know. Uh, he was extraordinary. Incredible. I mean, he was, he was like, you know, he was a preacher. He was. Yeah. He had that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. That he he reached to the back of the place, you know, and pulled you in, and it had that it had that that revival meeting feeling about it. And also, because this is nineteen seventy five, and it's you know nowadays if you go to a gig, you can pretty much predict who's going to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. That kind, those kind of people for that kind of gig, those kind of people for that kind of gig. Wasn't like that night. There was a huge mixture. I mean, you know, kind of African, dip very hip people, African diplomats, timeout readers. You know, kind of people who worked in record shops, and, yeah, then, and then and then youth yeah. from Brixton, and you know, and it, it, it felt it felt slightly dangerous. Actually, it yeah. felt it, it, you thought, my God, well, I've never been to anything like this. Nobody but also, it's the way. Like no, no one had. It was the way when I saw them. I mean, it was sad. It was their last London show, and I think it was the biggest London show. It was at Crystal Palace Bowl on, I think it was the seventh of June, nineteen eighty. And the thing that struck me was that you know most rock bands. You're used to it, that rock bands go on and they kind of perform at you. They've got a they've got a show that they've they've worked up and it's been it's been it's been thought through every aspect of it, and it's a it's a great big kind of performance. And the impression I got with them was that they were they were consumed by their own music, yeah. as if they were unaware of anybody else but themselves. They were transported by the sound that they mm. themselves were mm. making, mm. Um, which I'm sure is a kind of nonsense because I'm sure it was it was as, as rigorously storyboarded as any any other show really in that they'd had to. Work I don't out know. Probably wasn't. Probably wasn't in those days. Yeah, but, it's fairly fairly innocent times compared yeah, to nowadays. Yeah, maybe. Right? I mean, I found it very, very affecting that they just went on and just did the show, completely entranced by the sound they were making, without any attempt to kind of to do all those really obvious things that connect with an audience. And I thought that was really, really attractive. And they were fantastic. I mean, they still had the Barrett brothers. They still had all three of the original I3s, their junior... Um, Marvin and, uh, and Al Anderson, and uh, it was just, they, oh, they were wonderful. But Bob looked very thin, very yeah. thin and a bit tired, actually. And he, obviously he was really ill because he'd become ill in 77, yeah. hadn't he? Yeah. And he was, oh, it was awful when you think about it. I mean, he was told, I think, that he had to have a, uh, he had to have a malignant uh, tumour on his foot amputated. And he wouldn't do it for religious reasons. Yeah. And um, it's so sad, you know. Had that, had you know, he, he could have lived. I'm sure a lot longer. He might still be with us now. You, you really don't know. But uh, I suppose the thing that you realise when you go back and listen to the records is just how much he did. Yeah, in that yeah. Quite short period of time, you know. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say that he didn't achieve pretty much everything he wanted to achieve. Just well, yeah, that the, show uh, that we saw was like a greatest hits show. It was. Yeah. It was. It was natural mystic jamming. Because you know, woman. Because you know, that, that's a. That's the thing you have to remind yourself about with Bob Marley. You know, 
radical music in the, musically and kind of lyrically and introduced loads of ideas into the kind of into the national debate that would never have been introduced before, without Bob Marley at all. Yeah. And yet got played on the radio, was on top of the pops. Yeah. Got top 30 records. He was absolutely yeah, in, the in the bloody papers. mainstream. You absolutely know what I mean? Mainstream. Yeah, because, yeah. because he could write. Well, he was more than just writing, wasn't he? He could contrive, he could sing in a way that was... Because whenever you heard a Bob Marley record, you thought, oh, God, I've heard that before. But you hadn't heard it before, but it, it immediately <laughs> sounded familiar to you. It did. And you thought, you internalise it really quickly, you yeah. know what I mean? Because he just had that knack. And I think he also had a voice that seemed to... I think Chris Blackwell said this. He had a voice that almost sounded great on the radio. It did, it sounded incredible. And it just yeah. came through like on narrow that. sound. Absolutely. Projected. Yes, really. Like Bob did. Dylan's got very narrow. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I was thinking back to his life and some of the extraordinary things happened to him. And one of the things I'd, I'd kind of forgotten, actually, was do you remember in 1966, he went and lived in Delaware? Yes. I mean, you kind of forget that. You know, you just kind of think Bob Marley, you know, as the Wailing Whalers and then it to the Cox and Dodd studio and then he kind of developed to this stage. No, he didn't. No, no, at the age of whatever he would have been, 20 or 21, he'd just married Rita and his mum had moved to moved Delaware. To, yeah, yeah. And he went and lived in Delaware and he worked, uh, I think, on an assembly line at Chrysler and then he worked on a, a night shift. There's a, in fact, there's a song, isn't there, on whatever it is, Rest of Man Vibration Night Shift, where he talks about, you know, driving a forklift. So that's presumably what he did. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, he wasn't in any way kind of lost and thinking he was going to get out of the whole business. I think he, he'd been so, I felt he'd been ripped off by the fact they sold 70,000 copies of Simmer Down and, and then he made any money out of it. So he wanted to start his own record label. But I think that's amazing. You well, know, also, thinking, also 50 years ago this week, do you know where he was? Because I do. He was in, uh, he was in Sweden. He was in Sweden. Um, in a, in a house which looks like, if you see the house nowadays, it looks like Big Pink. Yeah. He was in a house with Rabbit Bundrick writing tunes for Johnny Nash to sing on the soundtrack of a Swedish film, which Johnny Nash was in. Oh, wow. So he, he brought it because he'd met Johnny Nash. Johnny Nash had kind of adopted him, you know. Johnny yeah. Nash recorded Guava Jelly and Stereotop yeah, yeah. and so forth. And so he was identified as a talented young man. All right, come over to Sweden, write some tunes for this um, for this film I'm making. So he's, he spent. So it wasn't all what people imagine, you know. No, he this done kind all of Rastafarian kinds of, spiritual journey. And, and you know, he was just but, a working and don't, music. don't forget the thing about Bob Molly is he was you know white father, black mother. Yeah. So he 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 passed back and forth. Across that line, quite easily, you yeah, know what did. I mean? Yeah, uh, that um, you know, he could have, you know, he looked like people's idea of a rock star. Yeah, he did. Um, which certainly worked for him, but he'd done all kinds of things. Yeah, definitely incredible. And also uh, the assassination attempt. Of that, you think about that now. That was two days. It was only a year after that Lyceum concert, nineteen seventy-six. And, you know, I think what he thought what had happened, I think, was that Edward Seeger, the Jamaican Labour Party, uh, had figured that he was supporting Manly at the concert that was coming up in two days' time and sent the gang to kind of to murder them, to assassinate them. And it's amazing. You think about it, he was shot. Uh, Rita Marley was shot. Their manager, Don Taylor, was shot. 
they all recovered. Um, and two days later, he played the show. Having <laughs> it's incredible yeah, when you think about it. it. Do you think that kind of fortitude? I just can't imagine people now being in an assassination attempt and then going out and playing to sixty thousand people two days later. It was absolutely astonishing, really. I suppose it goes back to what we're talking talking to Richard Thompson about. Yeah. Um, the other day, and if you haven't heard that, go and listen to it. We're talking about how quickly Fairport Convention, you know, recovered from their terrible um, van crash in 1969. And we, he was saying, well, maybe we had more in common with our parents' generation who'd gone through the war than we thought. Completely, it's stiff upper lip, it's good to it carry on. It's, it's <laughs> okay, let's get on with it. Let's let's not hang around. Let's not sit and feel sorry for ourselves. There's, there's, there's work to be done. <laughs> let's not it's go amazing. on. Let's, let's not go I on know. Oprah. I know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was a di different times. But listening to, I was listening to I Shot the Sheriff yesterday and thinking, what a fantastic song that is. Yeah. Don't you think the, 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 the opening line, I Shot the Sheriff, is, is one of the great journalistic openers of any song. It's absolutely gripping. And you desperately want to know what happens next. And then you get no real information at all. Yeah. You know, there's this description of events. Your imagination has to fill in the gaps. You know, you get the, the bare bones of information. that Sheriff John Brown has been gunning for him for his weed cultivation and has been presumably killed because it's a, a, criminal, a, 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 a capital offence in self-defence, and that the deputy was apparently shot by somebody else. It's an amazing song. And all you get is this kind of, you don't get any any notion of the story. You just got these lovely little bits of philosophy. You know, reflex has got the better of me, and what is to be must be. And every day the bucket goes to the well, and one day the bottom will drop out. It's an amazing song. So here, it's just very here, likely sketched in. Here, here, here's my question to you. If somebody came out with, up with that tomorrow, would Radio 1 play it? <laughs> Think of all the problems they have a cop killer. I mean, you know, which this was, I think this was brought into, into, into the argument, wasn't it? No, of course they wouldn't. I mean, I shot the sheriff. It's extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary. I, know, I know, I know. I was, I was listening to my one of my Bob Marley favourites, which is Exodus. Yeah. Which I do think is interesting. I mean, musically, I think it's an interesting bridge between kind of reggae music and club music. Yeah. You know, the, you listen to it and uh, and you think, you can you can hear you can hear a massive attack <laughs> coming yeah, in the yeah, distance, yeah. you know, from the other from the other direction. Yeah, and uh, and it also reminds me that one of the things I loved about him was that he his songs were so, were so full of biblical references because that's what he'd grown up with. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. And yeah. so the very idea of Exodus and movement of jar people and it's it's Israel and the pharaohs, yeah. you know, crossing the Crossing the Red Sea. Um, that stuff just went through all his stuff. But the other thing I absolutely love about it, and if you go and listen to it, uh, you know, it, it occurs in the first 30 seconds, is is when you hear him just laugh. Do you remember that bit? Yes, oh, yes. Um, you know, I can't remember exactly where it comes, but you just hear him go, <laughs> and they left that in. And it's such a thrilling sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's one of the things he was good at, is the odd little idiosyncrasies about his delivery. He didn't deliver like anybody else on earth, it, it strikes me. He made everybody else seem really boring yeah. in the way that they did anything, you know. So once he did it, that's the only way you could imagine it being done. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Word Podcast: Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. I become obsessed latterly、uh, with comedians in cars getting coffee. Uh, oh, it's really good—the Jerry Seinfeld thing. Yeah, which I slowly over a period of years, I used to catch bits of it on the internet, but it's now—it's all on Netflix nowadays. On most of it's on Netflix, and the new stuff's on Netflix. And、uh, I was going to a thing recently where I, I just have to get, I watch one, and I think it takes about twenty minutes. I think I'll watch another one, and then、yeah, I'll watch、really、another.、Sure. I know. <laughs> they just and. and、uh, It's a it's a it's a beautifully simple idea, you know, which is Jerry Seinfeld just rings up a comedian and says, "Let's go and get coffee," and he always turns up in a slightly slightly nicer or stranger car, more remarkable car, which occasionally breaks down. Which very occasionally breaks down. <laughs> the sun is always shining, which I think、yeah. is a very important point. And they go off and they have coffee and they and they just chit chat about、um, you know. About the trade of being a comedian, and it it just works. And I think I think one of the things that makes it work. I mean, think about this a lot. Is it's morning? It's always morning, and so and the sun is always shining, and the coffee is always on. So、yeah. you've always got a sense of optimism. Yeah, nothing very confident. Nothing has been spoiled. You know what I mean? You start the day with this, and and you look at it at first. You think this is so simple. And then the more of it you watch, you realise it's fantastically produced. It's really carefully thought about in absolutely every aspect. And obviously, behind the scenes, there are hundreds of people labouring away at it to make it as perfect as it is. And well, they- you're never aware of anything but just the two of them in the car. But they've got the car cameras. They've got the the car in front with the cameras. The one behind, following them. They've got when you, when they're in the cafe. Presumably, that cafe has been taken over for the day, and the people well, in the background have got to be. be they've got to be actors. They can't possibly be members. No, of the no, because- they are members of the public because I've mean, various guests have said, "Are these people actors?" No, no, they're just people. And I think they just find a way of clearing the space、yeah. and making it making it tolerable. But going back to the cars, 
These are very often collectors' cars, aren't they? Really remarkable yeah. old cars. Usual so they have to, they have to somehow stuff. get those cars, and then they have to do whatever it, they have to do to get cameras in them. Yeah. Which cannot be easy, you know. So huge amounts of work. But you know what struck me yesterday as the as the the kind of the the, the acme of the of the kind of professionalism of that production and Jerry Seinfeld. One of the things that makes it work is that Jerry Seinfeld, apart from his many other qualities, is a very generous laugher. So when his guests make a funny, he laughs. He does. He falls about. He falls about laughing. And genuinely, too. But also, he has worked out that you don't make the sound of laughter because that will cover up the person's humour. And you don't strike any surfaces in the po- in the in the act of laughing because that would interrupt the sound. So he yeah. does this kind of I can't you know it's, it's a no, silent. Right. I've never noticed of, that. You're he absolutely mimes, right. He mimes laughing, but it and he slaps the table, but he doesn't actually slap the table. He brings his hand down as if he's doing it, and he's not doing it. Yes, because yes. that would I've never noticed that. That's that would make the right. sound. Yeah. It, there's so. It's the technique that goes into making it look like there's no technique is absolutely remarkable. And then the nub of the conversation with comics is always the same. You know, where do you get your material from? What's it like to die? I find it. Absolutely oh, my God, the, the one I saw the other day, I think you saw it too, is that Steve Martin one. Oh, Steve Martin. Absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> what he tells you about the points he makes about comedy, <clears throat> some of them really obvious, but you need to be reminded of. He says when he went on stage, this was what, was it, like early 70s? When was his peak? As a, as a uh, mid-70s comedian. was his mid-70s. peak. Mid-70s. So yeah. when he went on stage, said, nobody knew what they were going to get. You know, there was no social media. Yeah. No one had seen clips of it. No. no one really knew what the material was. And he said, you went out there and you entertained these people and it was all new. You know, I thought that was really interesting. You know, there was no competition he felt between the comedians. They were all... And it was new like music was new. You know what I mean? It, it, there was stuff that just hadn't been done before. Yeah. And... Um, just a bit where he talks about what it's like. He goes on, I think it's Saturday Night Live or whatever, and he goes out to play his next date and he says to the... Um, Promoter, how many people are out there? They said 7,000. <laughs> 7,000? It is the idea of adjusting to a crowd of 7,000 and how you play that crowd. Yeah. And then he said another interesting thing about it. he liked being paid on in direct relation to, to a number the number of, of tickets that, he'd sold. Yeah, yeah. So he said it, it, it reminded him of how successful he was and he felt he'd really earned it, you know. Yeah. Oh, I thought I thought it was extraordinary. And then he, the other thing about Steve Martin, he gave up, didn't he? He gave he just up. Stopped. He stopped doing, and he didn't say, he didn't announce he'd stopped. He just no. didn't do any more comedy. After a while, people thought, Steve Martin, what is he in movies now? Is he? Is he? Oh, I haven't seen him touring, you know. And he made the point that it's material, you know, that material. He said, "Is ten years." He says, "New material is ten years." Yeah. He said, "It took me ten years to generate the act." That made me Steve Martin. Yeah. And therefore, once people have seen the joke, he says, it's a conceptual joke. It's very difficult to go back and do it again. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to have a new joke. Well, a new joke takes 10 years. 
which was really interesting. I thought that was fascinating. And also he says that he's coming out of a, a, a particular time. He's coming out of the end of kind of Vietnam and there's a yeah. certain sensibility. And to have somebody being as absurd as him and as carefree and as, as he puts it, happy-go-lucky, he invented this character that he thought was happy-go-lucky, he said, which is very far from what he's actually like in real life. Also, that's interesting because you're yeah. sustaining a character, acting a character that you're not. Yeah. So that must be hard. But I've I, I, I noticed... Um, Stuart Lee's a really good example. I like Stuart Lee very much. Stuart Lee was making the point that the way comedy works now is because he, he used to do quite a bit on the TV, doesn't do the TV anymore, right. because if you do the TV, it uses up all your material. Yeah. So he writes a show which takes forever. He then goes and does it in a 400-seater theatre at Leicester Square, 400 people a night for two and a half months, sold out every night, and then puts out a DVD of it, and then that's gone. That whole yeah. thing is gone. Yeah. You never do any more of that ever again. And you're thinking, God, that's so labour intensive, you know. Yeah. And um, it's yeah. interesting. In one one of them I was watching uh, yesterday, Seinfeld was talking about uh, what he what they did, what comedians did, as compared to what humorous columnists did. Yeah. So he said, uh, humorous columnists. Well, that's fine. He says, but they don't get to die. <laughs> they don't. They, you know, they have some columns that are really good and some that are less than good. It sort of doesn't matter. The less than good ones. But it's don't not cost public them humiliation. It's not. You're public sitting at home thinking, shit, that wasn't very funny. But whereas <laughs> this is, there's a bit where Steve Martin talks about being out stage. He said he, he counted that he'd been going for 25 minutes he got a single without laugh. a single laugh. He <laughs> says, can <laughs> I go for the full half hour? Yeah, he says, I'm trying to see if I can make it. I know. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, well, we've yeah, those reflections on the kind of uh, on the kind of existential, you know, uh, part of being a comedian are absolutely fascinating all the way through the series because everybody's got a story. You yeah. know, you talk to Eddie Murphy, all these people, they can all remember dying. They yeah. remember it really clearly, and that's what drives them on. And, the dry, and they, 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 they learn huge amounts from that. You oh, know? It's, it's all about trying out material tentatively and seeing if it gets a reaction. We talked about this before, but, uh, but, but uh, you know, I've told you about watching Eddie Izzard and that thing during lockdown where he did a, uh, did a broadcast from uh, Riverside Studios with no audience. Oh, we can't do it. So he's doing this, this kind of material, some of which he's never really done before, but he's got no idea whether it's working or not. And I have to tell you, it wasn't. <laughs> largely it wasn't working we were sitting here watching thinking this is not funny and if he was in a room full of people not reacting he'd very soon modify his it's course a, wouldn't it, he? It, it, all the all the conversation around comedians is not about jokes it's just about laughter yeah it's about how can you get laughter yeah you know seinfeld in one of them i was watching it talked about going to see a friend in hospital he was he was on his on his deathbed yeah and he, he made him laugh. And it was a joke about cancer. And he said, for that, those few seconds, he was happy. Yeah. And he, he thought, what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's absolutely justified, you know, because that was his job, to provide laughter. Not to provide jokes, to provide laughter. That's the Barry Cryer method, I think. I'm a great admirer of Barry Cryer's. Another, ge so another generous school. laugher. Yeah, major laugh. Really good on the radio. Because Barry Crower laughs on the radio where you have to be heard. Yeah. So it's different from Jerry He's Seinfeld. really good. But he's got, a, a, Barry Crower's thing is he's got a, a gag on every single topic. And he puts, a, on the oldie website, he puts up a gag, I think pretty much every day. 
And he put one up a couple of days ago. Uh, it's his hospital joke. And he says, this guy's in hospital and uh, he leaves his hospital bed, dragging along behind him his drip. He's attached to his drip. He's still got his gown on. He goes across the road to the pub. And he orders a double whiskey. The barman, you know, very concerned, gives him the double whiskey and he drinks it. He says, with what I've got, I shouldn't have had that. And the barman says, what have you got? He says, 10p. <laughs> see it coming <laughs> just, but it's so brilliantly set up because it's the idea of the guy in the pub and he's got the drip and the, and the old pyjamas on <laughs> I don't know where it's going and the barman's so concerned what, what have you got <laughs> I think Barry Crowe is a master of that because he's just his jokes are so so tight and so he's got just exactly the right amount of information to set them up and that's from years and years, isn't it? Of just, just, of just doing it, of knowing what works and what doesn't. <laughs> this is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So a very sad loss this week. Our old friend and colleague, photographer Ken Sharp, um, died suddenly uh, at the weekend. In, uh, in St Andrews in Scotland, which is where he lived. Um, and, uh, Wonderful man. And uh, lovely, lovely chap. And, uh, and um, did lots of Yeah, we'll be familiar to people who, who, who yeah. read Q, particularly, particularly in the early days, because I, I think I was trying to work out how he got involved because he took my picture for some trade magazine, probably campaign or something like that in the early 80s. And uh, I, got, I got friendly with him. And when we started Q, we said, let's get Ken to take some pictures of kind of the rock stars and whatever. He, he'd never really done that before. He'd, um, you know, mainly done simple portraits and kind of stuff in trade papers or, or whatever. But he, he became an absolutely crucial member oh, of the he team. he was a big it? part of it. I mean, not just because he was such a lovely and friendly and sweet-natured yeah. guy, but he had an interesting way of taking photographs. What he was tending to do is take pictures of, I think, business people, wasn't it? But in informal kind of situations. So the pictures always had a lot of information in them. Yeah. It'd be somebody's office, and you'd see a lot of the office, and all yeah. the details, the things on the desk and the pictures behind them, and other people walking in and out of the shot, you know. And I think we thought that that was very attractive because at that time, rock photography was very it's quite staged actually it was it was, it was basically it was about studio the portrait base, wasn't it really? yeah it was about the portrait let's get a picture of somebody projecting whatever they think they're kind of I'm trying how to they want to be values but how they want to be seen whereas ken came in with these pictures i can remember sending him off to do a piece about french and saunders not that they're musicians but that was a really good example and he came back with these pictures of the two of them in the makeup room before they went on to this television show, and they're putting on makeup. There's the mirror surrounded by the the, the, yeah, the lights, yeah. and there's all the makeup people coming in. And it was just so much to look at. It told you so much about about them actually, and the situation that they were in. And he often did that. There was a great um, the Independent newspaper done a bit of that too. That instead of taking the news picture, they would be the ones who went back a bit and took a picture yeah. of all the, the other photographers taking the news yeah. picture to give you an idea of what this person was going through. You know. Yeah. And, oh, he was an amazing, amazing. So, you know, and, and we, we never discussed this with him re really at all, but it became a really important part of it because if Q's kind of editorial view was affectionate but faintly sceptical, Ken did that in photographs, absolutely naturally, because 
he was like that. You know, he was he was, he was affectionate, but also vaguely skeptical. Yeah, you know, he didn't idolise any of these people at all. You Not know, remotely. Um, but he saw them as they were, and uh, and the pictures that he 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 taken he took from those early days of Kiwa are still fantastic pictures. And um, and we were talking about him the other day. We were saying how many of them were of people smoking, and the reason was that, that this is the late eighties. Yeah. People still smoked, you know, obviously indoors, and they smoked during interviews. And Ken was a, quite an unobtrusive presence who was usually in the room when the interview was being done, listening, and he was genuinely interested. Yeah, and also just occasionally, you know. And one of the few intervals where you could take that kind of picture without catching somebody with their mouth open is when they draw on the cigarette or they light a new cigarette. Yeah. And so, so many of these pictures ended up being the opening spread of features Eric Clapton, Lemmy, uh, Lou Reed. You know what I mean? All the I've got same. one right here. Have I'm going to get it, actually. Hang on a moment. Have you Hang got on. one? They, it was always... It was always like a signature, you know, and I don't think he ever designed it that way. It was just that was the interval where you could take the picture. See, this is a classic. Can you see that? Oh, right? yeah, there you go. You got Lou Reed, right? That's a picture of Lou Reed that he took, and uh, I'll put it up really close. Yeah, yeah. Took absolutely fabulous. We made this into little uh, Q postcards. Right. He did lots of them. There's a lovely one of Lemmy as well, the lighting. Well, lots of people. But that was that was a great moment when people lit cigarettes. It was a kind of a, it was a punctuation, wasn't yeah. it? it? It kind of uh, it gave you a chance to 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 to, to just to, to get them doing something different, you know. God, it's amazing how much smoking used to be a part of those kind of photographs. The um, do you remember Herman Leonard's forties and fifties jazz pictures? Yeah, we're right. Yeah. Oh, incredible! Dexter Gordon and Charlie Parker. Dizzy, yeah, Dizzy Gordon, inconceivable just, without oh, without. They cigarettes. were just wreathed in smoke. <laughs> yes. There'd be sort of saxophone players playing, and the smoke was kind of almost as if it was like the clouds of notes yeah. kind of flying out the end of their horn. You know, it was absolutely amazing. Well, so that's um, Ken Sharp, who was sadly missed by. You were, uh, you know, well, loads of people and people, people who work with him, and loads of people on uh, on queue. You know, like I've been in touch this week with Matt Snow and John Aislewood and Paul Denoyer, and then and, you know people like this, and they all said the same thing. I travelled the world with Ken. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the world with Ken. You know, and apart from being a wonderful photographer, he was an absolute delightful uh, travelling companion. Uh, it's a very, it's a very sad loss. It's a really lovely guy. Yeah. You're listening to the Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. So, Alex, what do we have to talk about in any other business this week? Anything further? What have we got coming up? We got on July the seventeenth. In case uh, you know, tickets still still going for that. Word in the uh, park for yeah. our, our Word, Word in the Park, park in uh, in Holden Park in London, where we guarantee that someone will be shining. But it doesn't matter if it's not because we're under a we're canopy. Under canvas, under, under a canopy, and we'll be announcing further details about that. And, uh, and it's and, a uh, weatherproof uh, occasion in the ne- in the next week. And but you can where can you find details of that, Alex? You can find details. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, to the to the ticket page itself. But there's also a widget on wiyelondon.com right in front of the homepage. Okay, so make sure you get your tickets. We're looking forward to seeing you. It's a socially distanced, very comfortable environment 
for a couple of hours on a on a Saturday afternoon. And it also happens to be the same day as Record Store Day. Yeah. So if you're somebody outside London who's looking for an excuse to come into London and go to a word event, that can be a perfect day out for you. Um, okay, what else we got uh, coming up? What have we What have we got out there in got the world? New patrons, imagine oh, that yes. we have. We do, yes, we do. Uh, we have on, uh, on board uh, Peter Clitheroe. Hello, Peter. Good man. Welcome Cr- aboard. Chris Bork. Okay. Excellent. Hello, Chris. Chris Steph- Bork. Chris Bork from New Zealand. I know Chris. From New Zealand, yeah. Okay, yeah. excellent. Hello, Chris. Stephanie Killian. Hello, Stephanie. Good, nice Stephanie. to have you on board. And David Dowie. All welcome. All welcome. And uh, people are more than welcome to join them. And if you want details about how you might do that, if you go to patreon.com slash word in your ear, you can find out how you can be uh, you can be involved. What have we published in the last week? Uh, Rich Thompson, Thompson, Bernie Marsden. Uh, Bernie Marsden, if Both you haven't very seen good, it, I thought. If you haven't seen it already. Both of them are really good in there. Bernie Marsden's hilarious. Both so of them, likeable. Both yeah. of them are kind of 50-year veterans of yeah. <laughs> playing playing guitar in bands. So really. much wisdom and knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wisdom Absolutely. being a key word, actually. What uh, I have learned. And loads more coming up in, 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 in the weeks ahead. So, um, you know, get on board. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.